Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're now in lectionary year C, in which the gospel reading is primarily going to be from the gospel according to Luke. We just finished up year B. You might remember that the primary gospel for year B is Mark. And Mark's gospel comes to us primarily from the eyewitness testimony of Peter. So really, Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel, just kind of written as Mark has received it from Peter. But Luke, Luke gets all kinds of sources for his gospel account. His biography of the person in the works of Jesus is very, very detailed. You can get a taste of this in how he begins his gospel account. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he writes this to Theophilus. Theophilus means one loved by God or one who loves God. It's possible Luke was writing this to a friend by the name of Theophilus. Or he may have been writing this to all people who love the Lord generically, or are loved by the Lord. Regardless, though, Luke, who was a physician, so quite well educated, Luke set out to truly investigate and determine whether the things he had been told of Jesus were true. So he went and he got eyewitness testimony. He asked questions. He uh, discovered what the truth was. He was diving in to find the facts so that he could share that information with everybody else so that when people heard of Jesus, they could know the things that are true and the things that are not true, which is really helpful for us. Because we can't be there and talk to those first-hand witnesses. He did it for us. And Luke concluded, after having done his investigation, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one by whom, through whom, salvation has come. In today's reading from Luke chapter 3, we get a, a, a little bit of a flavor of the kind of detail that Luke likes to use He writes, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch in the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. He's got all of these details, right? Who was reigning, where, when, all of these details. Why? Because he's showing these things are real events that happened in real time, real history, in a real given context. These are not just stories that somebody made up. This is a real account of a real man, the God-man, who was in the world doing these things. Now, what does he say happened at this specific time, place, and setting? The word of the Lord, or the word of God, came to John 
the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John begins his ministry. John is that one prophesied of by our uh, Old Testament reading, in the Old Testament reading, by Malachi. He is the one who is to prepare the way of the Lord. He is the one who uh, calls people to repentance. Uh, Isaiah, too, prophesied of him, as Luke uh, fills us in, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And, the, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John's out there in the wilderness telling people to prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord. Calling people to repentance. He says he can't count on just your bloodlines. You can't just say, hey, we're children of Abraham. Of course we're good to go. We've got the right bloodlines. You know, my, my grandparents, they were members of the church. My, my parents were faithful members of the church. That doesn't matter. That's what John's saying. It doesn't matter what your family relationships are. Are you repentant? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And some of the people took John's message to heart. Many really did believe the Messiah was near. They wanted to genuinely to prepare themselves. They wanted to repent. But what does it look like to repent? What does it look like to have a godly life? What does it look like to really prepare for the coming of the Lord? Well, throughout the centuries, there have been three general approaches to this, to, to what a life should look like. Approach number one we'll call passive monasticism. Passive monasticism involves retreating from the world. Now, there's nothing wrong with retreating from the world from time to time. You need to, to maybe step back, have a time of refreshing, and then get back into things. But passive monasticism is about a constant retreat from the world. You can kind of think of passive monasticism like this. Do nothing... Because if you do something, you might accidentally sin. <laughs> so you just don't do anything. You spend your time trying to be godly by not getting involved in the lives of other people. Because, you know, when you get involved in the lives of other people, their lives are messy. And you're dealing with other sinners. And it's hard. So we'll just step back. We just, we just won't do that. And we'll just, we'll just be on our own. Passive monasticism might involve things like fasting, prayer, and worship, but largely it involves trying to interact as little as possible with the world. Passive monasticism substitutes personal religious rigor for actually serving our neighbor. Now, the passive monastic approach has a lot of appeal to people because it looks really serious. It looks really dignified, 
it appears to be something truly godly. But the problem with it is that it's cutting ourselves off from those that God has given us to love and to serve. By retreating from the world, we don't make ourselves more holy. We just have the appearance of holiness. Monasticism, uh, passive monasticism cuts us off from the way God designed things to work. So that is not the answer. Approach number two that people have tried, we'll call active monasticism. Active monasticism is all about doing. In contrast to passive monasticism, active monasticism says, get out into the world, serve, do. You got to stop wasting your time going to church and start going into the world and being the church. Active monasticism leads people to do things like take a trip to Israel, to the Holy Land, so that you can see and experience the things in the Bible, not so that you can just understand them better and have a better, uh, better feel for those things, but because simply by going, you actually are doing some great thing. Active monasticism celebrates things like going on a mission trip far away when you have a neighbor right next to you that you could serve, but you just don't want to. (laughs) Active monasticism is, as the name says, it's about being active. Go, serve at a food pantry, do a good work for a neighbor, do, 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 do. Now, the appeal to this is pretty obvious, too. It looks like you're really doing a lot. But the active monastic approach substitutes what we have decided to do for true repentance. In active monasticism, we're trying to make up for our sins with good works. So the passive approach, we're trying to avoid interacting with others because we don't want to accidentally end up having some sinful thing happen or that we might actually accidentally do some sinful thing. The active approach is I'm going to do and do and do and do and do and try to make up for the sins that I've committed. And both of these fail. Now the crowd, having heard John the Baptist call them to repentance, they're not sure what it looks like. What does it look like for us as we're waiting for the Messiah, as we're, as we're waiting for the Lord? What does it look like for us now to, to live out the faith? And so they do something that's pretty smart. When you don't understand something, you ask a question. <laughs> and that's what they did. They said, what shall we do? If we believe the Messiah is coming, if we trust God in his word, if we really want to love the, to serve the Lord and live in such a way that we're prepared for his coming, we want to live a life of repentance, what does it look like? John, tell us. And he tells them, whoever has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. 
John doesn't say, cut yourself off from the world, have nothing to do with other people because they might accidentally lead you into something sinful. And he also doesn't say, you better find out some great thing you can do for the Lord so that he'll be impressed and he might welcome you into his kingdom. But he directs them to serve their neighbor and the vocations they've been given. Hey, you're a tax collector? Cool. You don't have to quit that job. Just do it honestly. Do it well. You'll serve your neighbor. You're a soldier. You don't have to quit being a soldier. Just don't abuse your power and use it instead to protect others and be content with what you're given. And we can extend this to ourselves. What's your vocations? What job do you have? Are you a husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister? Do that. Do that well. Love those around you well. Serve honestly. You don't need some great new thing. You don't need to avoid the world and its messiness. And let's be clear, when you get involved with other people, it is messy, isn't it? But instead, as Jesus came from heaven to earth to love and to serve us, so that by faith in him we are saved, we now get set free to serve our neighbor. What does God want me to do? Serve your neighbor. (laughs) Love your neighbor. In some great way, well, just in the vocations he's given you. Help them out. Do it honestly. This is the life of vocation. This is the third and final approach to the question we asked earlier, to the questions we asked earlier, right? But what, what does it look like to repent? What does it look like to live a godly life? How does one prepare for the coming of the Lord? Well, the vocational life answers it this way. Because you are loved, because you are part of the family of God, having been adopted in baptism, you're now free to serve your neighbor as yourself. You're free to serve them, not for your own benefit, but for theirs. See, in that passive, that passive approach, why are you refraining from the world? For your own benefit. In that active monastic approach, why are you doing and doing and doing? For your own benefit, so the Lord will be impressed with you. In the vocational living, why do we serve our neighbor? For their benefit. What if I don't get a warm, fuzzy feeling about doing it? That's okay. They got served. It's great. What if I do get a warm, fuzzy feeling from serving them? Cool. That's great. Good for you. But this is what we're called to. To love as we've been loved. To serve in the vocations into which God has placed us. And we can do this because we know our place in the family of God is sure. The the beginning of that gospel reading, what is John proclaiming? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Your sins are forgiven. You are claimed by Jesus, loved by Jesus. The one John the Baptist prepared the way for, he has come. He has saved you. He's coming again. He will bring you to be with him in glory forever. So now, what do we have to do in the meantime? Well, we're saved. What can we do? Oh, we can serve those around us. We can love them. We can take care of them. Because we don't have to prove anything to anybody. We already have been claimed by the loving God. So we're free to love as we've been loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the peace that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. 
Amen.